You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Chapter 28. The Gardener's Son. When Ezekiel was 25, the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. He was forced into captivity, taken from the city, and abandoned in a refugee camp outside Babylon. Five years later, he was celebrating his 30th birthday by sitting next to a drainage ditch and feeling sorry for himself. His big 3-0 should have been the day when he was appointed a priest in Jerusalem, but instead he was... Well, sitting next to a drainage ditch feeling sorry for himself, which was kind of understandable once you put it in context, right? But then, something fantastic happened. Ezekiel had a vision. It was the first of many, which Ezekiel would put to writing in the imaginatively titled Book of Ezekiel. Most of Ezekiel's visions were prophetic, like foreseeing the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the Temple of Jerusalem, and a lot of stuff about the Temple of Jerusalem, mostly. But that first vision, which the mopey tricenarian Ezekiel saw from the drainage ditch, that's the part that's relevant to us. Brace yourself, because this is going to go on for a while. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man and on the right side each had the face of a lion, and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. 
Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. That's a lot of trippy detail, but Ezekiel knew what it was. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. According to Melchior Bauer, it was so much more than that. There's vexingly little I can tell you about Melchior Bauer, other than that he was the son of Hans Bauer, a gardener in the small Thuringian village of Lenich, and that he was intensely religious. As we discussed last time around, if you asked religious thinkers of the 18th century whether flight was possible, a lot of them would tell you no. The prospect was best poo-pooed by Clement Baroni Cavalcabo, who said that humans could not even fly by demonic influence, since demons could not subvert the will of God. But when Melchior Bauer read the book of Ezekiel, he saw another way. You didn't need the devil to fly, and you didn't need newfangled science or engineering either, because God did want humanity to fly, and he'd left instructions on how in Ezekiel's first vision. In 1763, Melchior Bauer came to London to ask King George for funding and support. In exchange, he would build for the monarch a new and wonderful flying machine, based upon the flying cherub wagon seen by the prophet Ezekiel, which Bauer and George could then use to destroy Catholicism. There was only one question, how to get word of his invention to Windsor Castle. Bauer found and approached the official scribe of the court and asked him to write a letter to the king. That being the scribe's business, he asked Bauer what the letter was to say, at which point the gardener's son launched into a long description of the book of Ezekiel, the flying machine encoded within it, and the prospect of using said flying machine to float to Rome and destroy the Pope. The scribe listened patiently, and once Bauer was finally done laying it out, responded, I wouldn't give that message to the king if you paid me 500 pounds. Oh well, thought Melchior Bauer. On to the next king, who happened to be Frederick the Great of Prussia. This time he was able to get a letter written, but not delivered to Frederick, who should have been celebrating winning the Seven Years' War. But the victory put Prussia in dire financial straits and killed off a whole lot of good men, so instead he was feeling sorry for himself. 
Although, instead of a drainage ditch, he did his sighing at the new palace in Potsdam, which was commissioned at great expense to ill-advisedly celebrate the end of the expensive war. Given that he was practically broke and yet still spending money building an enormous Baroque palace, it's unlikely that Frederick the Great would have been willing to finance a flying machine, even if it was a good idea, and wasn't posed by the son of an unknown Thuringian gardener, which it wasn't and was, respectively. Bauer got a hold of Freddy's war minister and gave him the letter to pass on to the king, which, incredibly, he did. Most gracious king and lord, Melchior wrote. I wish most respectfully to reveal to your royal majesty a hitherto unknown invention, that which by God himself is called the mercy seat, or cherub carriage. This carriage I can now make with my own hands as it should be made, just in the shape in which the holy prophet Ezekiel saw it with his godly eyes, and of which he writes in his first and tenth chapters. Just as all mankind now travels over the water on the instrument of Noah, so will it be with this carriage. Bauer's letter explained what he needed to make the carriage, some wood, wire, and silk for materials, three or four months for time, and a house built on a high hill in which to build and then fly from. Moreover, he explained the workings of his cherub carriage and how it aligned with Ezekiel's description. It would be made entirely out of fixed joints, with nothing to turn or twist, especially the four wheels at the bottom, since the prophet had repeatedly emphasized that the thing he witnessed did not turn or rotate. It would need a platform upon which the pilot could stand, and 16 silken wings above that, four for each figure, which said pilot could rock back and forth like the oars of a kayak from side to side, and... In so doing, a great thundering roar would usher forth, as Ezekiel had also described, and the whole thing would lift up into the air. For it is the counsel of the righteous God that we, mankind, should go in three ways, namely, on the earth, on water, and in the air. His word is sufficient witness for us, as also the creatures and animals on the earth. For should silly flies, gnats, and grasshoppers have an eternal advantage over reasonable men, the children of God? For are men not worth as much as ravens, geese, swans, and storks? With God's help, should such things not be as easy for men as to travel over the water? For just as God has given us the means of traveling over water, he has also given us the means of traveling in the air, for he is mighty and wise enough for that. On that brass-swollen high note, Melchior Bauer threw himself upon the mercy of King Frederick the Great. Frederick read the letter, if glancingly, and returned it to the war minister. Tell him no, he said, and be rude about it. Minister Kuyper was happy to oblige. A fiery fever has turned your head, he told Melchior Bauer. There have been many much cleverer than you in this matter who have studied and learned more than you, you foolish man, and nevertheless, they have failed to bring it to fruition. My dear man, are you not now fearful for your sanity? I pity you from the heart for having fixed such a mad scheme in your head, for to all appearances you are a sensible fellow. If you had not given me your text, I would not have believed you to be so great a fool. The gardener's son was turned away again, but he had one last hope. He returned home to Thuringia and aimed his sights at a lower noble, Heinrich XI, Prince Rus of Greece. He must have been especially hard up, too poor either to afford another scribe or another sheet of paper, because he sent to Count Heinrich the very same letter he had sent King Frederick 
down to the salutation and everything, tacking on an extra bit at the end to explain himself directly to his new addressee. He didn't need silk, he told Heinrich. He understood silk was expensive, so he'd worked out a way to build the wings out of paper instead. But he did still need a house to build the whole thing in, preferably upon a hilltop, so he could roll the chariot straight out the door and into the sky. Still, he cautioned, the house should be secret, because if that damnable antichrist, Pope Clement XIII, got wind of what they were up to, he would no doubt send some Catholic brutes to put an end to the invention. Melchior Bauer was far more thorough and far more forthright with Count Heinrich than he'd been with either of the kings who had turned him away. He included diagrams and figures, sprawling explanations of each and every minute element of his machine, but he also felt free to explicitly explain the use case of the cherub wagon. We know that the popes and their accomplices promote the devil's teaching. That is, they hinder and forbid people from reading God's word, and they forbid priests to marry. As a result, the heathen are seduced into a loathing of Christ and his teaching, and are led to think that Christ himself must have been just such a teacher as the marriage banners are now. For by means of this carriage, the word of God and the pure gospel will be kindled and spread throughout the whole world, as God himself promised, among the Jews, the Turks, and the heathen. Therefore, this may with justice be called the greatest of all the arts, since by its means, God will destroy and overthrow the kingdom of Antichrist and will help mankind to reach complete salvation and righteousness. Starting to sound a little freaky? Just give it a minute. If I am not mistaken, we shall in future times, in my opinion, be able to hurl fire, brimstone, and stones the weight of a talent on the anti-Christian and idolatrous peoples, places, and states which choose to rebel against the true Christian kingdom. And throughout the whole world, there will no longer be any safety for the anti-Christian party and armies. They will all have to turn to the true Christ, who will offer safety to such people as root out all the vexations of the earth. Heinrich of Roos joined Kings George and Frederick in rejecting the request. If Melchior Bauer built his cherub wagon, no one noticed. If he lived a long life, it was a quiet one. If he died, that was quiet too. There's nothing more to say about Melchior Bauer or his invention after the letter he sent to Heinrich. He simply disappears. There are a lot of people throughout our story like Melchior Bauer, people who thought about wrote about or otherwise investigated the possibility of flying, but never made any real attempts. There were model makers, like the 15th century Italian engineer Giovanni Fontana, who built a rocket-powered model Dove in 1420 that he caused to fly for 100 feet. The Austrian mathematician Reggio Montanus, whose writings partially inspired Copernicus, reportedly built a small clockwork fly that he got to buzz around the dinner table of Petrus Ramus, hero of our episode, Everything Aristotle Said is Wrong. Juanello Turiano had one of the coolest titles of all time, court clockmaster to Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. As you might expect, he made clocks, but he also built a series of devices that drew fresh water to Toledo and built a couple of automatons, automated metal men that mechanically prayed or beat their backs in mea culpa so that real people wouldn't have to. And in 1557, he showed off a wooden sparrow that made a circle around the dining room of Emperor Charles's country retreat in San Just. Robert Hooke, 
The English scientist, who, among many other things, developed the wave theory of light and first postulated an inverse square law for gravity, also built a tiny model bird with spring-powered wings, which he said raised and sustained itself in the air in 1659. Edward Somerset, the Marquis of Worcester, said he made a winged chariot out of old farm tools, which he forced a 10-year-old boy to ride across a large barn, but Somerset was generally full of shit and used the same kind of tone to announce several perpetual motion machines during the same time period. There were also plenty of people who wrote up or even published designs for flying machines they never managed or bothered to build, either in model or practical form. A German locksmith named Johann Illig said he could build a giant eagle suit that a man could fit inside and fly by means of a perpetual motion machine. But luckily for the prospective pilot, Illig never got past the drafting stage. Before Emanuel Swedenborg, founder of the New Church, started having visions and preaching that the Second Coming had already happened and conversing with spirits from the moon and so on and so forth, before any of that, Swedenborg worked for years in his 20s on designing a flying machine a big ovular wing with a basket in the middle, but he never got it made, and it's not clear that even he himself believed it would work. There are dozens upon dozens more ideas jotted on proverbial napkins, whittled concepts, tin-type figures, and I've generally declined to tell their stories. What makes Melchior Bauer's flying design different from them is... nothing, really. There's nothing particularly novel about his concept and nothing exceptional about Bauer himself, but there is something different about the moment at which he was pitching his cherub wagon. Melchior Bauer is approximately the last person to work on the flight problem before the entire landscape of that problem changed forever. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and this is the last installment in a five-part series on humankind's ill-fated attempts at flight. Today's episode, What Goes Up, Part 5. Chapter 29 the Balloonist. On August 27th, 1783, the people of Gannes, northeast of Paris, beheld an astonishing new sight. It was just past five o'clock in the afternoon when the first person, let's call him Pierre, noticed. Pierre, let's say, was in the middle of a heated conversation about wine or cheese or whatever it was French people got into heated conversations about. Did I already say wine? When he stopped mid-sentence, his jaw hanging slack, his eyes as wide as dinner plates, fixed just above the horizon. His sparring partner, let's call him Pierre too, was alerted by Pierre, the other Pierre's, sudden silence and turned around to see it. From there, the whole village followed. One by one, the people of Ganesh were struck dumb. They stopped what they were doing, stood baffled in the middle of the road, fell from their horses, burnt their dinners, spilled their drinks as they looked on into the sky, awestruck. It was like a large, low-hanging moon, a big silken ball, hastily yet effortlessly floating over their village. The people of Ganesh had never seen anything like it before. To be fair, almost nobody had. 
1670, Francesco Lana de Terzi had proposed an airship lifted by vacuum brass spheres. He concluded his design would fail because God would not allow it to be built, but in actuality, his design would have failed because the air pressure against his empty spheres would have crushed them. But there was something to his general concept. Most of the people who thought human flight was possible figured it would look like the flight of a bird, that it must have something to do with wings. Understandable, since birds, bats, and insects were the only things people had ever seen fly before. But Lana de Terzi had realized there was another way. Air had weight. It had density, just like water. And if you could make yourself lighter than air, you could float, just like on water. But what could be lighter than air? Well, there was one thing, phlogiston. In 1703, George Ernst Stahl had proposed a new idea for how fire worked. Since Empedocles and fucking Aristotle, the Western world had assumed that everything in the universe was made up of some combination of the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire. When a thing was burnt, the fire part of that thing was expelled. But after the Renaissance, a series of experiments had shown that things which were burnt didn't always lose mass. So Stahl challenged the four elements theory and replaced it with phlogiston. Phlogiston, Stahl said, was the part of a compound that became fire. And since fire always rises, phlogiston must be lighter than air. In 1766, Henry Cavendish succeeded in isolating phlogiston, or so he thought at first. He called it inflammable air, a new element, and he could create it in his laboratory very easily. And soon, so could everybody else. Later, Antoine Lavoisier would rename Cavendish's inflammable air with the word we use for it today, hydrogen. And wouldn't you know, just as Stahl had proposed, it was lighter than air. Oh, and yes, it was incredibly flammable. Joseph Michel and Jacques Etienne Montgolfier were papermakers, inheriting the family business after their elder brother Raymond died. Jacques was a sound and sober businessman who helped improve and enlarge paper production. Joseph, conversely, was a pie-eyed tinkerer. In 1782, while watching the embers rise out of a fire, he began formulating a theory that there was something in the fire's smoke that lifted the embers, a substance he decided to call Montgolfier gas. Montgolfier gas, he said, had a special property that made it buoyant, which he called levity. That's cute. To test his theory, he built a small box, three feet on each side and four feet high, out of thin wood. He covered the box in taffeta and filled the bottom with crumpled up paper. When he lit the paper on fire, the box lifted into the air and hit the ceiling. He told his brother to order more taffeta, and the two of them together built a larger scale version, nine feet on each side and 12 feet high. This time they burnt a large quantity of wool and hay underneath it and launched it outside. It lifted so powerfully that the brothers couldn't hold it down. They had to let go, at which point it floated into the air and was caught by the wind, drifting more than a mile away before coming back to Earth. Next, they built an even bigger version, 35 feet wide and looking now like a proper balloon made out of four big bits of sackcloth buttoned together and lined with more of that patented Montgolfier paper. 
Because Joseph thought smoke was what contained his namesake gas with all its levity, the brothers this time burnt more acrid fuel, old shoes and meat along with the hay. It flew the better part of a mile, but came down faster than hoped because the gas was seeping out of the buttonholes, the brothers probably correctly figured. Next, they built a bigger balloon still, big enough to carry a person. But since they feared that a person might not be able to breathe the air at elevation, they tested it first on animals, a rooster, a duck, and a sheep named Montossier. The thinking here was ornately silly. Since the duck could fly, it was almost like a control group, whereas Montalciel was considered the real test subject. The chicken was somewhere between them. It was a bird, but it couldn't fly. So if the sheep perished, but the duck survived, the fate of the chicken would tell the brothers something or other. But that wasn't the case. All three animals landed safely after eight minutes in the air, two miles from Versailles, where the Montgolfier brothers had begun their demonstration in front of King Louis XVI. Finally, Etienne Montgolfier teamed up with a wallpaper maker named Jean-Baptiste Revelion. Together, they built a whopping 60,000 cubic foot silken balloon lined with paper and alum varnish, painted royal blue with gold embossment in the shapes of zodiac signs and fleur-de-lis and the face of King Louis at each cardinal direction. On October 15, 1783, Etienne climbed in and became the first person to actually fly in human history. The physicist Jean-Francois Pilatre de Rosé followed him later the same day. For each flight, the balloon was tethered to the ground, but a month and change later, on November 21st, they cut the vessel loose, and de Rosé flew free from the Chateau de la Mouette on the western edge of Paris and landed 25 minutes later outside the city ramparts to the southeast. It had been almost 2,000 years since Emperor Nero had sentenced a nameless actor to leap from the top of a proscenium to recreate the failed flight of Icarus. And suddenly, from a couple of paper makers, the oldest dream of humanity was realized. It was like magic. But it wasn't magic. It was 1783 France. There was no magic. There was only science. And science craves replicability. After the first public Montgolfier brother test flight in April, the Academy of Science asked that someone replicate their results, and Jacques Charles, a relatively unknown Parisian scientist, answered the call. The Montgolfier brothers wouldn't tell anyone what was in their lifting gas, old shoes and meat, remember, leaving Charles to work it out for himself. But instead of old shoes and meat, he figured they must have been using Stahl's phlogiston, Cavendish's inflammable air, or, as you and I know it, Lavoisier's hydrogen. Creating an envelope imporous enough to keep in the smallest of elements was difficult. Charles turned to Angine and Nicholas Louis Robert, the Robert brothers, a pair of Parisian engineers who quickly came up with a way to dissolve rubber in turpentine and then paint this airtight varnish onto a silk balloon. Once it was completed, Charles and the Roberts began slowly filling it with hydrogen, which they produced by pouring sulfuric acid over a half ton of scrap iron. 
The process took days, during which their balloon began to attract attention. A large crowd gathered, including Benjamin Franklin, who would begin investigating the science of mesmerism along with Lavoisier just a few months later. Check out the episode Mesmerizing if you haven't heard it because it is one of my favorite stories ever. Back to it. With all the attention, Charles and the Roberts began to get nervous. So when the balloon was finally ready after four days of inflation, they moved it more than two miles away to the Champ de Mars, where the Eiffel Tower now stands in the middle of the night. Then they launched it. The big silken hydrogen balloon raised into the air and began floating with the wind. It left Paris and about 45 minutes later began to lumber over the heads of the astonished peoples of Ganesse. Everything stopped. The sleepy town turned their heads to the sky as the great hydrogen balloon hovered over the low-slung buildings of Ganesh. Only the second or third balloon flight ever. The birth of the age of flight. The realization of humanity's oldest dream slung low in the air directly above their heads. When Ezekiel was 30, he looked out over the drainage ditch and saw a flying chariot and knew it was the glory of God as he bowed his head in prayer. What the people of Ganes were seeing was like something out of scripture, but their reaction was different. They picked up spears and pitchforks and formed a mob. They threw rocks. They threw knives. They brought the balloon down to earth crying, kill it, kill it. Then, when it was brought down, they began to stab and tear at it, releasing a foul cloud of hydrogen gas that only justified their anger and fear. So they grabbed a rope, tied it to a horse, and drove the animal up and down the streets, dragging the balloon until there was only a few muddy shreds of fabric left. The age of flight had begun, the way all new ages do, with violence and fear. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well. But how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? Every day, I like to do something that relaxes me, like cooking or music. This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. Whether it's hitting the gym, making time for your haircut, or even trying therapy, you are your greatest asset. So invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. I'm a big believer in therapy, and I recommend that everybody give it a shot. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and constant listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash The Constant. That's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash The Constant. You're successful in business because you love doing the research, whether it's the state of the market or the next right hire. But when you're low on hours and you still want to do a great job on hiring, who do you go to for help? It's time for Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. 
Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. I like that Indeed makes it easy to hire great talent. According to Comscore, Indeed is the number one job site worldwide. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash the constant. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to indeed.com slash the constant to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash the constant. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Chapter 30 the apothecary. It didn't take long for balloons to fill the sky, and everywhere they went, they were loved. Balloonomania spread from city to city, region to region, and country to country. The Montgolfier brothers and their confederates floated from place to place, and everywhere they went, they were beloved. After losing their first hydrogen balloon to the frenzied mob of Ganesse, Jacques Charles and the Robert brothers built another and another and another, larger and larger. They flew with nobles, with generals, and everywhere they went, they were beloved. Jean-Pierre Blanchard, who had previously developed a series of heavier-than-air flyers that never got off the ground, abandoned his winged baskets and jellyfish-like apparatuses for balloons after seeing Charles's hydrogen envelope. He became the first person to fly over the English Channel, the first person to fly in Prague, in Germany, in Poland, in the Netherlands, and in the United States, where his takeoff was witnessed by George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe, one current and five future presidents in a single trip. And everywhere he flew, he was beloved. His wife, Sophie Blanchard, became the first woman to fly and kept on flying after her husband's death until she also became the first woman ever to die in a flying accident when she ignited her hydrogen balloon while trying to set off fireworks above the Tivoli Gardens amusement park in Paris, which was owned and operated by Etienne Gaspard Robert, the protagonist of our latest Secret Feed episode. Even after her basket crashed onto the roof of a house and burnt her alive, she remained beloved. Anyone who could ascend into the air instantly earned the adoration of the public, all the more so if they could claim some pioneering first with their flight. With the exception of the first British balloonist, James Titler. James Titler was, it seems, a roundly unlikable fellow. You can count the reasons why on a hand and a half. He started off as a preacher with the Church of Scotland, but quickly left the ministry to study medicine at the University of Edinburgh. He doesn't seem to have earned his degree, and after a year's apprenticeship with a ship surgeon, he landed in Leith, where he opened a pharmacy in the early 1760s. The venture was doomed to fail, probably because Titler had taken to drink. He closed up shop, fled his creditors in 1765, shortly after finding one person who temporarily could stand him, Elizabeth Rattray. They were married just in time for him to drag her out of Scotland to York, where he opened 
another pharmacy, which likewise foundered and failed because of his drinking and general unpleasant disposition. After fathering five children with Elizabeth and fleeing his now English creditors by returning to Scotland, he made himself even less popular by abandoning his family in 1775. Deep in debt, which he continually ducked, Titler was unable to establish another pharmacy and turned to writing to pay his bills. That strategy never works for anybody, and it very much failed for Titler and further cemented his reputation as somebody nobody cared for. His pamphlets took two forms. First, he wrote about religion. By the time he returned to Edinburgh, Titler had converted to the Glassite Church, an extremely conservative new sect of Protestant Christianity which looked down its nose at pretty much everyone else. They spoke out against gambling, against traditional Christian communion, against all material wealth, vice, and more. Anyone who disagreed with the church at any level was excommunicated, and anyone who even sat down for a meal with a former member was kicked out with them. Hitler wrote sanctimonious humbug about his glassite beliefs, which failed to make money, even while he also wrote the exact opposite, Ranger's Impartial List of the Ladies of Pleasure in Edinburgh, a catalog of all the prostitutes he knew, and knew, if you get me, in the city. The book included a fold-out map, locating 66 worshippers of Venus, as Titler called them, each of whom he describes in attentive and careful detail. There's Miss Rutherford, the perfect mistress in the art of kissing, of which she is not a little fond. Lady Agnew, the drunken bundle of iniquity, who would as willingly lie with a chimney sweep as with a lord. And of course, Miss Betty Clark, who understands the power of friction admirably well. Ranger's impartial list was scandalous, but more profitable than Titler's religious tiskings. However, taken as a pair, the hypocrisy was a bit much for the gentry of Edinburgh to swallow. After striking out in his writings both sacred and profane, Titler landed a surprising job as the editor of the second edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. In spite of his drinking and general curmudgeonliness, Titler was apparently a productive and entertaining writer and editor on an array of subjects for the encyclopedia, and he may have finally found something he could do that wouldn't get him in trouble. But leave it to the debt-ridden, family-abandoning, twice-failed apothecary James Titler to step over his own feet. In addition to his drinking, his carousing, his spending, and his religious scalding, Titler also had some deeply unpopular and downright seditious political beliefs. He tried to slip his thoughts into the encyclopedia. His entry on taxes suggested people shouldn't pay them. His entry on the House of Commons called it a vile junto of aristocrats. His entries on powerful British citizens were festooned with insults and libel. The publishers, Andrew Bell and Colin McFarquhar, had to double-check his every word to excise anything unpalatable. But when he failed to get his views out through the reference series, he started spending the money he made on the job, and which he owed to interests all around the country, on publishing them himself for all to read. In summary, he was a drunken religious scold who racked up debts, wrote self-righteously about his faith, frequented prostitutes, wrote about frequenting prostitutes, ran away from his wife and children, encouraged tax evasion, and published insults about his fellow Edinburghians. And, in case you couldn't tell, he was a wee bit antisocial. All in all, not a formula for popularity. Then he built a balloon. 
It was an incredible amount of money, money he had to borrow without hopes of ever repaying. But on August 25th, 1784, James Titler filled his hot air balloon and levitated off the ground. A couple of feet. The crowd, already disposed to grumble, was unimpressed. And even though he managed to climb 40 meters a couple days later, the public still seemed underwhelmed. They wanted a balloonist, just not this balloonist. Wasn't there someone else they could truly, you know, belove? A month later, the British people found what they were looking for. On September 15th, 1784, Vincenzo Lunardi slipped into the air above London. Vincenzo Lunardi was a nobleman, an aristocrat who had come to England as secretary to the Neapolitan ambassador. Royalty and riches. Everything James Titler hated. His first takeoff was witnessed by an audience of almost a quarter million people, including George IV, Prince of Wales. And Lunardi gave them all a show. He billed himself as the daredevil aeronaut and brought a cadre of animals along with him on the flight, a pigeon, a dog, and a cat. His trip was much more than the levitation trick Titler had pulled and even more than the drunken encyclopedia writer's second half-mile excursion. Lunardi flew for miles and miles, touching down just once at North Mims to let the airsick cat back onto solid ground, Ah! before ascending again and continuing on to stand in Green End. In all, he had flown for 24 miles. The press called it the first flight in British history. But it wasn't. Titler's was. He steamed and stewed. It wasn't fair. Some pompous Italian fop was stealing his spotlight. Balloonomania came to Britain with Vincenzo Lunardi, and it was a severe case. Balloons were embroidered into coats and pants and bags. They decorated shoe buckles, earrings, and necklaces. There were candle snuffers, marches, dishes, and liquors. Women wore tall balloon-shaped hats and even bulbous balloon-like dresses, all of them named for Lunardi the first person to fly in Britain. No, not Lunardi. All of that tacky shit those idiots like should be named for me. They should be called Titlers. The craze came directly to his backyard with Vincenzo Lunardi, who took off by balloon from Titler's own Edinburgh in October of 1785. There's a plaque on the spot even today. It reads, Vincenzo Lunardi, born in Lucca, Italy in 1759. He ascended in a hydrogen balloon on 5th October 1785 from the Garden of Harriet's Hospital, Edinburgh. He landed at Coaltown of Calange in the parish of Ceres, having traveled 45 miles. This was the first aerial voyage in Scotland. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't, screamed James Titler into his pillow, or maybe into Mrs. Dingwell's, who could be found at the fountain well and was, he had written, a good winter piece, and indeed, upon the whole, very agreeable. He organized a new flight, just weeks after Lunardi's, to prove once and for all that he was the premier British aviator, the true king of the Scottish skies. Hard to say what went wrong, Maybe he'd been in such a hurry that he didn't wait for the balloon to fill up. Maybe he'd made the envelope wrong in the first place or else not properly maintained it. Whatever the case, when James Titler boarded the basket and untied the ropes, nothing happened. He just stood right there beneath his balloon and upon the hard, cold ground, just like everyone else. When finally he gave up and stepped out, the balloon began to rise after all, just without him in it. 
The crowd booed and screamed out, Coward! as the drunken fumbler struggled to pull his expensive hobby back down before it ran away with even more of his money. People walked away surer than ever that Lunardi was the right one to love. In a few years, Titler's politics caught up to him. He was charged with sedition and expatriated from Britain. He had been the first person ever to fly above the island, whether the island wanted to admit it or not, and now he was never allowed to set foot on it again. He traveled to America, writing angry poems about his former country and its corrupt aristocrats all the way. He landed in Salem, Massachusetts, where he edited a local newspaper, sold some miscellaneous medicine, and drank alone. On January 9, 1804, he stumbled out of his house in that state, drunk and solitary, and disappeared. A few days later, his body was found, washed up along the shore, unknown, unmourned, unloved. The Constant is brought to you by University of California, Irvine Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive, and UCI-DCE can prepare you to stand out. According to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, continuing education correlates to higher income, it opens doors to networking opportunities, better job opportunities, and career progression. Somebody poured their blood, sweat, and tears into every piece of knowledge that exists, but all you have to do to get some of it is sign up for a class with UCI-DCE. They've been serving lifelong learning and skills development needs for the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. They offer over 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health sciences, law, finance, and more. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis, and non-formal application is required to enroll. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. At UCI-DCE, enrollment is open to everyone. Go to ce.uci.edu slash learn now to learn now. Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash learn now or follow the link in the show notes. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Chapter 31. The Lieutenant. Flying is a metaphor with a universal adapter. Happiness, success, freedom, naturally, enlightenment and invention, victory, comfort, motherhood, laughter, religious ecstasy, sexual ecstasy, sacrifice, but above all the others, love. It's possible the metaphor goes both ways, that we inherently know that flying feels like love. Maybe that's why so many of us want to experience it. In the late 1700s, balloonomania swept around the globe and stayed around for a good long time. Anytime something happened in ballooning, the public fell in love, and the best things in ballooning were about love itself. There were balloon weddings, balloon proposals, balloon honeymoons. But the best balloon love story, the one that most captured the hearts of romantics everywhere, was the flight of Lieutenant Thomas Harris and his fiancée, Sophia Stocks. Predictably, nothing is known of Sophia other than that she was 18 and came from the Haymarket in London. In fairness, not much more can be said about Thomas, not even his age, although he too seems to have come from the Haymarket. He was something of a ballooning prodigy, though, showing off a hydrogen balloon of his own design back at said Haymarket in London. Lieutenant Harris's innovation was a double-release valve, like the kind you might have on an air mattress today. Two valves, a larger one with a smaller one square on top of it. The small one could be opened to fill the bag or to slowly empty it. The large one could cause the gas to expel rapidly, solving a serious problem with balloon design. When you set your basket down on the ground, the balloon was still full, high above you. If there was a breeze, it could topple over. If there was a wind, it could be dragged. If there was a gale, it could be destroyed. But with Thomas Harris's double valve, all he had to do was pull a cord to open it up as soon as he touched down, to release the gas, flatten the bag, and stop still right where he was. Having successfully tested the balloon and successfully proposed to Sophia Stocks, he endeavored to combine the two. So the love story goes, the Paramours set off from Vauxhall on May 25th, 1824. They rose and rose and rose above the London streets. The feeling on board the basket of Thomas Harris's balloon, named the Royal George, would be hard to describe. It was a feeling of lift. Thomas Harris sharing his greatest desire and secret, finally, with Sophia Stocks. Sophia Stocks, at once excited and nervous to receive it. Higher and higher they went, with only the sound of wind to mask their fast-beating hearts. They slipped further and further away from the rest of the world, which looked up jealously at them. But no one could see what they could see. 
they shared a secret universe, a magic pocket of time on an otherwise ordinary Tuesday. It was, in short, the feeling of love, of flying. Then something happened. Exactly what is hard to say. There are a lot of theories, but they all revolve around the double valve system. It could be that as the air pressure dropped, the line to the valve tightened and opened it. Or maybe Thomas was attempting to let out a little gas to even out their ascent, and it got stuck. The specifics aren't important. What matters is that, high above Beddington Park, the Royal George began venting hydrogen. And the more it lost, the faster it fell. It's a funny thing, really. Because if you ask me, love can just as well feel like falling, too. So the love story goes, once Thomas concluded he couldn't get the bag sealed again, he began tossing over ballast, every weight he could, to slow their descent. Not just sandbags, but everything they had on them. Perhaps a picnic basket, perhaps a pocket watch, but it wasn't enough. According to Time magazine, he tore off his own clothes and threw them overboard. And Sophia's, also, when that too was inadequate. The trees below them were approaching with dangerous speed. Thomas realized he had one weight left to jettison. He turned to Sophia, kissed her, told her he loved her, and jumped off the side. Even Thomas Harris's sacrifice wasn't sufficient to stall the fall, but it slowed it, just enough that Sophia Stocks, the 18-year-old fiancé from the Haymarket, lived. I'm not sure where this version of the story, the love story, came from, I can trace it back solidly into the 1880s, but it's clear from those references that it's older than that. It seems probable that it sprang up soon after Thomas Harris's death, and that most everyone understood it to be the truth. It's probably not, though. The direct sources, witnesses, and the coroner's report indicate that both Sophia and Thomas were found in the basket after it crashed into a tree. Sophia was alive, though seriously injured. Thomas was not. But even if the story wasn't quite true... It sure felt like it was. It felt right. It felt like the natural metaphor played all the way out to its end. Thomas Harris loved Sophia Stocks. Sophia Stocks loved Thomas Harris. And after his death, so did everyone else. He became the first British balloonist to die in flight. And the first to sacrifice himself for love. Chapter 32, The Tailor. Enough about balloons. At least, mostly, and at least for a while. After all, no sooner had they started rising into the air and entrancing the general public, others began scoffing at them. There were a couple of legitimate reasons to, too. Samuel Johnson echoed the opinion of many. Balloons were neat, they were an interesting novelty, but what good were they, really? What use did they serve? You couldn't travel by balloon, not if you cared about where you were going, at least. They couldn't deliver mail or cargo. They had no use in war, which wasn't quite true, but seemed to be at the time. If balloons were going to be anything more than a fad, they needed a means of propulsion and direction. But that was elusive. Balloonists tried sails. That didn't work. Neither did oars or big hand fans. 
Jay Kaiserer proposed training a team of eagles to pull the balloon on reins like horses to a carriage, but if anyone ever tried that, they must have been disappointed. There was another issue with balloons. They didn't feel like flying. Climbing into a basket only to have the basket climb to the clouds was exhilarating, no doubt, but it wasn't what flying felt like in dreams. It wasn't soaring. It wasn't diving. A balloon didn't cut through the air like the tame eagles Kaiserer suggested tying to it. Wings. True flying had to be about wings. In 1807, a Swiss watchmaker named Jacob Deegan tried to have it both ways. He built a pair of large, leaf-shaped wings that he mounted to his shoulders. These wings were different than most the tower jumpers had come up with before him. With a series of metal spokes, he built a rigid frame that kept his wings level, horizontal, extending almost, but not sufficiently, like a hang glider. Deegan stood in the middle of this big set of wings upon a metal perch and grasping a handlebar, which, when pulled, caused the big steely wings to flap. It wasn't enough to get airborne, he knew, but that was what the hydrogen balloon was for. Did I say enough with balloons? Well, almost. Give it another minute. In order to make his wingsuit work, Deegan needed to reduce his weight, so he tied himself to a medium-sized hydrogen balloon, just big enough to make him roughly neutrally buoyant. Now, when he pulled down the handlebar and flapped his wings, he bounded into the air in big, awkward, slow-motion moon jumps. That was as good as he could do. No matter the tinkering, he still couldn't make the thing fly. Albrecht Ludwig Burblinger knew how to fix it. Burblinger also wanted to be a watchmaker, but his dad died when he was 13, and he had been sent to an orphanage where he was instead forced to be a tailor. It seems like Albrecht Burblinger must have seen Jacob Deegan's balloon-assisted wingsuit, because what he ended up building looked almost exactly the same, but with one little fix. No balloon! He sewed the whole thing together in spite of threats and fines from the tailor's union, who said whatever he was doing was unapproved scab work. Eventually, he spent every cent he had on the wingsuit. Once he had built it, he began testing it by himself in the hills outside his hometown of Ulm. He would run and jump from them and, with a little bit of practice, glide. Yes, glide, at least a bit. Albrecht Burblinger had one of the world's first semi-successful gliders, but that prefix semi is doing a lot of heavy liftings. It turns out that the hills outside of Ulm were the perfect place for Burblinger to jump. They had favorable winds, updrafts that helped the glider catch air, and just enough slope for him to catch a little bit of it without falling and hurting himself. Probably his glides, if you can quite call them that, only lasted a second or two. But that was enough to give Albrecht Burblinger the confidence he needed to bring his invention to the public. Not just the public, but the king. Frederick I of Wurtlemberg, who was visiting Ulm on May 30th, 1811, along with three of his sons and the Prince of Bavaria. Burblinger announced for both king and country his intention to fly across the Danube. He built a small scaffolding on top of the city walls, raising him to a launch height of about 10 meters. People assembled along the walls and on the opposite shore. They crowded into boats and on the streets, wherever they could, to watch King Frederick watch Albrecht Burblinger fly across the Danube. 
Burblinger climbed to the top of his scaffold, unfurled his big wiry wings, stood before the king, overlooked the river, and flinched. This was a lot more pressure than he was used to alone in the hills, and a much steeper drop, too. After pacing back and forth for a while, he called an audible. Never mind, he said. He would not be flying today, and would not be flying for the king. Disappointed, and probably a bit pissed, Frederick and his sons exited Ulm without seeing Burblinger leap. They left behind a few members of court so that Burblinger could fly for them the next day. But the next day, Burblinger was still feeling shaky. He'd been so confident in his flying machine before, but now he couldn't bring himself to trust it. For good reason, as it turned out. After again vacillating and stalling and hemming and hawing atop his perch, Albrecht Ludwig Burblinger was just about ready to call it again. But before he could step down, an impatient policeman standing behind him decided that he had had enough and pushed the timid tailor of Alm off of the wall. Burblinger spread out his arms like he had on the hills, trying to catch the wind as he tumbled off the edge. He did not. He fell straight down into the river and had to be rescued by a waiting boat. His wings were ruined, and so was he. He never made back the money he'd spent building them. His pocketbook, along with his reputation, was ruined. Because he hadn't even attempted the jump on purpose, the people assumed that he wasn't only a fool, but a liar, a con artist, who had never even really meant to fly, but was just looking to scam the king with a bunk investment. He went back to being a tailor. He didn't want to, but he had no other choice. Even though almost no one would bring him work anymore, and those that did paid cut rates. He died penniless in hospital in 1829 at the age of 58. The remains of his wingsuit were burnt as English contraband shortly thereafter. Chapter 33. The Shoemaker Is Vincent de Groof our second shoemaker or our third? What is it about cobblers? Did they get sick of dealing with worn-out soles and broken heels until one day they thought, I can't take this anymore. How can I keep all these people from walking around on the hard cobblestones breaking my shoes? Hey, I got it. Vincent de Groof, the cobbler of Bruges, was the spiritual successor of so many of the earlier would-be flyers we've looked at. When clock towers and belfries and other high structures began being built more than a thousand years ago, a certain class of people looked up at their tops and thought, I'll bet I could jump off of that. De Groof carried the elan of the tower jumpers into the 19th century. While plenty of people felt that hot air and hydrogen balloons were a passing fad, and others thought they were astonishing, De Groof saw lighter-than-air flight as a pathway into its heavier-than-air cousin. By the late 1860s, there were a handful of working gliders out there, but still no sign of a sustained winged flight. These gliders, though, were being launched from clock towers and belfries and other high structures, and De Groove seems to have figured that was the problem. They just weren't starting with enough height. De Groove's design looked almost like the wings of a bat, with bones made of bamboo cane and membranes of waterproof silk. But his was not just a glider, it was an ornithopter. The wings beat and flapped by the flipping of three levers positioned in front of him. The flapping never seemed to do much good, but again, de Groof presumed to know why. He just hadn't gotten high enough yet. In Bruges, he tried launching himself from hot air balloons, and most of the time it went well enough. 
He'd glide gently down to earth, rapidly flipping his levers, hoping to work his way upward, but to no avail. Other times it went worse. The wings, perhaps stuck too long in a flapping position, didn't sustain him so much, and he more or less careened back to ground. On one occasion, his wings were broken, and while he pulled himself out of his pummeled daze, a crowd of Brugians pillaged his equipment and made off with it in pieces. So he moved to London, where the people were friendlier. That can't be right. No, fine. The people of London weren't gentler than the people of Bruges, but the balloons there got higher. And that was what Vincent de Groof really needed. He found a British balloonist named Charles Simmons, who agreed to take him up to 400 feet. De Groof was tied up in his wingsuit to the outside of the balloon and gave instructions when they reached the height for Simmons to cut the rope. Away de Groof went again, flapping and gliding but only ever downward. Onlookers were impressed, but the shoemaker wasn't. He still wasn't flying. He'd need to go higher and flap harder. On July 2nd, 1874, Charles Simmons took him up to 500 feet. And when he cut loose the ropes, DeGroof flapped like he'd never flapped before. He pulled and pushed at his levers, tugged and punched. The wings beat so hard, DeGroof could feel the air brushing against his cheeks on the downstroke. Yes, yes, he was doing it, just a little bit harder, a little bit faster. And the wings snapped back, collapsed in midair. The whole contraption turned into a writhing, plummeting ball of bamboo and silk, with DeGroof leading the mess earthwise in a panicked fall. One more Icarus story, as the Daedalus version grew nearer. Chapter 34. The Astronomer. There'd been so many broken promises over the last 2,000 years. Tailors, cobblers, professors, priests, marquises, locksmiths, clockmakers, barbers, laborers, architects, archbishops, alchemists, even Leonardo da Vinci. But by 1903, the world seemed poised to finally, finally, meet the goal that so many had strived for and dreamed of. The real progress had begun with George Cayley, a Yorkshire engineer who began working on winged flight in the 1790s. Cayley built primitive testing sites in the stairwells of his house, into which he could toss model planes to see how they performed. Through close observation, he managed to delineate the four keys of flying, thrust, lift, drag, and weight. He also developed the first working airfoil. In 1853, he convinced one of his employees, maybe his butler or else a coachman, to take a running leap with his hang glider. And for the first time in recorded history, a person successfully left the ground. Cayley's gliders and insights were the first concrete signs that flight was more than a fool's errand. But four years later, he died, leaving the realization of his efforts to whoever was bold and clever enough to grab it. For a few years, it was assumed that that bold and clever individual would be William Samuel Henson, an English machinist, who took Cayley's designs and principles, enlarged them, and slapped a steam engine on top. The media was full of optimistic drawings, engravings, and paintings of the Henson aerial steam carriage soaring through the sky. But it never did, and after a few years, Henson gave up on the idea. A French naval officer by the name of Félix de Temple de la Croix tried to pick up the torch, building promising scale models of clockwork and steam-powered bird-shaped airplanes before ramping up to a full-sized monoplane in 1874. The monoplane used a special compact steam engine developed by Félix and his brother Louis. It had a very large propeller in the front, directly behind which the pilot would sit and be buffeted by loud, powerful winds, 
But while the temple's monoplane did manage once or twice to briefly leave the ground after a long run down a ski jump slope, the engine didn't have the fuel or the power to keep it up. Another English engineer, Thomas Moy, managed a similar hop with a similar steamship in 1875, but nothing more. Hiram Maxim, inventor of the first automatic machine gun, added a second steam engine and a second set of wings to his attempt, but after being pulled down a set of railroad tracks, it too managed no more than a hop, and Maxim gave up on the endeavor. Without a doubt, the greatest inheritor of Cayley's legacy was Otto Lilienthal, a German engineer who began building flying machines in the 1880s. He built an artificial hill on the outskirts of Berlin with a slope that allowed him to run down with his glider, jump, pick his legs up, and glide the rest of the way. His first successful attempt covered just over 80 feet, but he quickly improved. Lilienthal had everything a successful aviator needed. He was an astute pilot, an insightful engineer, and even managed to build a couple of small but powerful engines that were almost up to the task of lifting one of his gliders. For half a decade, Lilienthal was known as the Flying Man, making over 2,000 glider flights. People came from all over the world to his artificial hill to see him soar. On August 9, 1896, such a crowd was assembled and watched as he made several glides of 800 feet and more. But on the last flight, the glider pitched. Its front turned downward, and Otto Lilienthal was unable to correct it. Both smashed into the ground from a height of 50 feet. Lilienthal's neck was broken. He slipped into a coma and died a day and a half later. The epitaph on his tombstone echoes his final words. Sacrifices must be made. There was pretty much one guy left to make them, as far as most people knew, at least. Samuel Pierpont Langley. Yes, as in Langley Air Force Base. Yes, as in NASA's Langley Research Center. To call Samuel Langley an accomplished astronomer would be underselling it a smidge. The director of the Allegheny Observatory, secretary of the Smithsonian, and founder of the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, his work in solar and infrared radiation helped confirm the greenhouse effect, determined the temperature of the moon, and helped mark interstellar distances. Not to mention that he created the first standardized time zones in North America, although the railroads fought him tooth and nail on that for a while. If anybody could solve the flight problem, it was Samuel Pierpont Langley. His models backed that impression up. Langley's planes were long, narrow, torpedo-shaped steam engines with two sets of wings, one in the front and one in the back, with a small bullseye tail trailing behind. They started out tiny, but each successive one was larger than the last. The Model 5 was 25 pounds, just two iterations away from human size. It was catapulted from a boat in 1896 and flew more than a thousand yards before coming down safely on the Potomac. The Langley Aerodrome No. 6 was even bigger and flew even further. That was all he needed to see. His aerodrome not only worked as it got bigger, it worked better as it got bigger, meaning it was time to go one step larger and put someone on it. Langley's Smithsonian, along with the War Department, financed the building of the full-scale flyer, and with the extra money, he was able to commission an internal combustion engine instead of steam. Everything was falling into place. Oh, sorry. Poor choice of words. On site, Langley's final aerodrome doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. The body is so long and so thin, like a flying flagpole. The wings, in contrast, are small and boxy. 
The models had all worked, though, so despite its flimsy appearance, hopes were high that Samuel Langley had built the world's first working airplane. Like the models, the aerodrome didn't have landing gear and favored calm skies. That meant it had to land in water and launch via catapult. So Langley and the War Department set up a large ship-mounted catapult once again upon the Potomac River on October 7, 1903. Langley asked Charles Manley, the engineer who had finished his internal combustion engine, to act as test pilot. And Manley, God love him, agreed. The first flight was a disaster. The aerodrome nicked the side of the catapult as it was fired and shot directly into the drink. Manley was unharmed, incredibly. Even more incredibly, he agreed to get back in and try it again. It was a huge event. Between the War Department, the Smithsonian, and Langley's prestige as a scientist, the aerodrome was roundly considered the last best chance at flight. On December 7, 1903, reporters from around the country assembled to see Charles Manley get catapulted over the Potomac. If Samuel Langley couldn't get a man into the sky, the press figured, nobody could. And he could not. It turns out that the aerodrome was as flimsy as it seemed. The second it was hurled into the air, the whole thing shattered into pieces. Pieces which, like Charles Manley, were flung unimpressively into the freezing river. Thankfully, Manley was recovered without injury. But that was it. The goose was cooked. The best hope of flying had broken into tinsel before the eyes of the world. Many people figured they knew why. The goal was unreachable. Upon seeing the aerodrome flicked like a crumbly sugar cookie into the icy depths, Simon Newcomb decided he had been right. Flight was impossible. The man who pinpointed the speed of light, who discovered Benford's Law of Large Numbers, wrote up an article entitled The Outlook of the Flying Machine. And that outlook was grim. It's been a while, so let me remind you, we are back where we started. All the way at the top of part one, Simon Newcomb, forcefully and convincingly arguing that humanity will never fly. One week before we did. Chapter 35, The Bicycle Sellers. I've been over this and under this, looked at it from every angle, like Joni Mitchell, and there's just no way to end this story without talking about the Wright brothers. That's not because the Wright brothers are the end of this story. It's because this story has no end. I highly recommend anyone who's interested, and anyone who hasn't had more than enough of this topic already, go back and listen to our friend Sebastian Major's podcast, Our Fake History. At just about the same time I decided to pull the trigger and do this series, Sebastian began releasing his own version, titled Who Was First in Flight? It'll make you think twice about how much credit Wilbur and Orville get, and make you think once about many of the other contenders who have pretty good arguments for being called the first real aviators. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not here for the first person to fly. We're here for the last person to fall. And that list continues on into infinity. When news of the Wright brothers' success, which was a pretty short and unspectacular success, mind you, but when people first heard that they had managed to fly, nothing was settled. It wasn't as if everyone looked at the Wright flyer and said, oh, that's how you do it. And from then on out, the model was cast. Plenty of people didn't hear about the Wright brothers at all, not for years to come. Or if they did, they heard about them in the same breath as so many other hopeful aviators, whose successes were still in question. Maybe those bicycle salesmen, the Wright brothers, had made some progress. But what about... The doctor. Arthur de Bosset, 
who promised to make good on Lana Turtsey's vacuum airship idea in 1899. Or the Baptist minister, Burrell Cannon, who, like Melchior Bauer, believed the instructions for flying were buried within the book of Ezekiel, which he used to construct a paddle-wheel-powered silken monstrosity which some, definitely incorrectly, claim flew in Pittsburgh, Texas a year before Kitty Hawk, around the same time as the Justice of the Peace, Edward Perkis Frost, who said he managed to fly with an unlikely setup, a pair of giant eagle's wings strapped to a lawnmower engine and set within a thin metal scaffolding. The Farmer. Richard Purse built a short, squat, ultralight aircraft with a gigantic dorsal fin that witnesses said flew in New Zealand nine months before the Wright brothers, although Purse himself said it hadn't worked. After Kitty Hawk became generally accepted, there was still a lot of conjecture about whether the Wright brothers' design was the future of flight, and lots of would-be competitors stepped up. The other Marquis. The Marquis d'Ecville, to be specific, thought he had a superior idea for flying. He built the Marquis Multiplane in 1907. It was a big oval with a stack of 10 wings cutting through the frame. In the front, there was a gigantic prop that, like Felix de Temple's design, would have made life miserable for the pilot who stood directly behind it in the center of the wild contraption. If it had flown, it didn't though. Instead, it was burnt in a fire, and de Equivalet started again with a new giant oval. Instead of 10 wings, this one had 100 wings. But it didn't fly either. The telephonist? If 100 wings sounds like a lot, wait until you see the AEA Signet, the brainchild of Dr. Alexander Graham Bell. Bell had been working with tetrahedral kites in the early part of the century and thought their shape was superior to flat wings. The Signet looks like an early airplane if you cut off its wings and replaced them with a giant wall, 10 or 15 feet high, with thousands of little kite-shaped cutouts Swiss cheesing through it. In total, the Signet had 3,393 such cells, which Bell presumed would make it the king of the airplanes. In 1907, Thomas Selfridge got on board as the Signet was towed by a motorboat. He managed to get it into the air more than 150 feet, But the problem with designing a plane after a kite is that a kite isn't a plane. It couldn't be controlled, it couldn't fly under its own power, and when it hit the water at the end of its glide, it broke apart. There are dozens more. You've seen some of them, for sure. Old newsreel footage of planes with 20 layers of wings or flapping machines on the backs of men that run, jump, and immediately fall on their faces, or weird semi-helicopter contraptions that bounce violently up and down while overdressed men run away in fear. We covered the Christmas Bullet and the Tillingist Airship in earlier episodes, not to mention Louis Gathman's supposed helicopter airship in the Fool Killer series, for decades after the Wright brothers. Well after flight became dependable, after airplanes went to war and commercial flying became a reality, people were still out there saying, no, this isn't right. There has to be a better way. Icarus kept jumping long after Daedalus had landed and eaten lunch. It's no secret why. I remember playing Ghost in the Graveyard with some neighborhood kids one summer evening when I was little. 
All of a sudden, I had a realization, though I didn't quite understand it. I put my hands out in front of me and pressed them down slowly upon the empty air. The air pressed back. I could feel it resisting, holding my hands like a wobbly bar stool. I stopped the game, called the other kids over to see, but they couldn't. It just looked like I was doing Tai Chi or something. So, nervously, tentatively, I began to pick up my feet. One, and then, with a little stumbling hesitation, the other. I was floating, awkwardly, above the residential street. Then, with sudden confidence, I shot up and away, zooming over the houses and into the night sky. It was a dream. A dream I'd go on to have over and over, night after night for years. My favorite dream, bar none. I wish it would come back now. And in that dream, flying? It sure didn't feel like riding in an airplane. It wasn't loud and bumpy. I wasn't locked into a cramped compartment with crying babies and their belching fathers. I've grabbed the ends of my brother's letterman jacket and run down a hill, feeling like I could take off, just like Archbishop John Williams felt when he was a child. And sure, I never jumped, and if I had, it would have worked out as poorly as it did for him, if not worse. But I felt it, so I know. Real flying doesn't feel like flying for real. I can't help but root for each and every idiot who slapped feathers to their arms and vaulted out of a church window, even though they were all doomed to fail. I'd still root for one today. Because until someone flies the impossible way it feels to fly in our heads, the story isn't over. But after nearly six hours of podcasts, this series finally is. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Title cards by Heather Chrysler. Special thanks go out to Nate Jenkins, Katrina Nordine, Chad, and Rob, along with everyone else who contributes to make this show possible. If you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com slash theconstant. And or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Buy a shirt or tote bag or coffee mug or what have you. Go to our website, constantpodcast.com, and navigate over to our store to peruse. Leave us a review and a rating where you listen. And tell a friend. Tell two friends. Tell all your friends. That was a lot of talking about flying. Next time around, we'll try to keep the subject down to one episode. But until then, from Chicago, Illinois, where in 1879, balloonist John Wise, the first person to deliver mail by air, disappeared without a trace over Lake Michigan, never to be seen again. This has been The Constant. The Telephonist. Is it Telephonist? I doubt it, but let's say it anyway. The Telephonist. The Telephonist. The Telephonist. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs>